0: Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. Hello, I'm Peter Moore. Today we're off to the mid-15th century to see one of the great technological inventions at the moment of its creation. In October 1454, the diplomat Ennio Silvio Piccolomini, later to become Pope Pius II, arrived at the great Frankfurt Fair. The annual event attracted people from right across Europe. Merchants carried wool from over the sea in England, there was Italian wine and bohemian glass, and delights from the distant east, like nutmeg, cloves and cinnamon. The item that caught Piccolomini's attention, though, was none of these. On display for the very first time was a curious collection of papers. These papers were covered by a script. A script that was at once beautiful and defined, and yet perfectly regular, in two neat columns. Within days, Piccolomini was writing back to his friends in Rome of his miraculous discovery. Today we know that he'd got the very first glimpse of one of Johannes Gutenberg's magnificent Bibles. Today's guest is going to guide us through this whole enchanting historical story. Susan Denham-Wade is the author of a sweeping new book called A History of Seeing in Eleven Inventions. In it she traces the contrasting ways that humans have interpreted the world around them. Stephen Fry has called the book a remarkable achievement. Susan joined me just the other day for a travel back through time. Susan Denham-Wade, it's a real pleasure to be talking to you today. How are you?
1: I'm very well, Peter. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm loving it.
0: Good. Well, as I was saying to you just before we started recording, we've got a wonderful historical story to talk about today. But as ever, um, I want to just start with the book um, that kind of takes us to the story. Um, and in your case, it's your first book. And I was thinking, well, you know, at first book, you should try something very modest and easy and simple. Maybe concentrate on a little set of primary source material. But what you've actually done is, um, is extraordinarily ambitious. You've set out to write the history of seeing and perception. Can you tell us a little bit about this book that's uh, brought us here today?
1: Yes, well, it was inspired by the internet meme um, that came out, I think it was 2015, of the dress, um, which was the this image of a dress that some people saw as black and blue and other people saw as white and gold. Do you remember that? Mm, I do, yeah. and And it was this phenomenon that people would be looking at their screen together and one person would see it one way and one person would see it the other way and that got me thinking about um how subjective seeing is and it made me wonder about whether if you and i could be standing looking at the same screen in the same time and place how did someone who lived hundreds of years ago see the world did they see differently and i have to say i started with a completely blank slate i had no idea I, you know so the first thing i started looking into was how does seeing actually work? And then I start, and I looked into the evolution of eyes because I thought, well, maybe our eyes have evolved in the, in the sort of million years that humans have existed. Um, but actually, I found that eyes were one of the very first things to evolve in the entire animal kingdom. Um, and eyes have existed for something like 500 million years. And in fact, eyes very similar to our own um, have existed for about 300 million years and haven't really changed that much since. So uh, it just got me really excited about the whole process of of vision and seeing and yeah. then um, trying to find a way to to investigate how people did see their world because obviously you know it's it's a slightly tricky thing you can't ask someone yeah. i mean obviously art is a very important source so anyway but in the end what i decided to do was was think about well when might have been the the points in history when seeing underwent some sort of change through a technology or a skill or something, and that that led me to the structure of the book, the the eleven inventions that ended up being being the chapters in the book. So it's a nice
0: um, combination, really, of science and history. But there's this important um, idea that I suppose you're putting towards, which is um, goes against what I suppose would be received knowledge, which is that seeing is is thought of as an objective experience but obviously as in the case of the um the dress show that it's not always like that um is that right I mean how objective is is sight is it is that too big a question can you give me an
1: answer to that well it's a it's quite a it's quite a it is a big question but it's it's not really objective at all it actually our brain and the thought parts of our brain that you know including our memories and uh culture and our mood are all involved in seeing from right from the outset of the of the process of perceiving so when we look around at something, our our focal central focal point is actually very small. You know, it's right in the middle of our retina, and so you know, if you look at a, a book at arm's length, you can really only see in in clear focus one or two words. Um, and so, when we're looking at something, when we think we're, that we're looking at the whole um, world around us, we're actually really only looking at very specific little sections of it, and we're piecing together a picture of what we're seeing, and how we, our brain decides the way that we look around uh, the scene in front of us, even if our eyes are apparently, we, you know, we think we're looking straight ahead or we think we're looking at the whole picture. Our brain is actually directing us around that scene in, in different ways. And you and I might look at a scene quite differently if we come from a different background or we've got different things going on in our minds that day. And there's been very research that has shown that cultural differences between, for example, people from a Western background and people from an Eastern background. One experiment um, showed people a scene with a central figure and um, a background. So say, um, you know, an aeroplane and a jungle behind it or a a tiger and and some mountain scenes. The people from the Western uh, background focused much more on the central figure Whereas people from an Eastern background uh, tended to focus, look at the central figure, then look at the background around them uh, a lot more than the the Western people. And the the researchers concluded that this is because Western culture is much more individualistic, whereas Eastern culture tends to take account um, much more of the overall context. and, um, And this actually manifests itself in how we visually record a scene in our own brains. So it's not really subjective at all, even though you know the light rays coming in through your pupil focusing on the um, on the retina is an objective process. Everything that underpins that is directed by your brain.
0: Mm. Well this is really fascinating. And I can't let you get away without giving us some kind of explanation what was going on then in that strange episode that you mentioned right at the beginning with the dress this is 2015 I think and um, just to give a a bit of a potted history I think this is the moment when uh, someone was out testing a wedding outfit and they tried on a dress and some people thought it looked one way some people thought it looked another of course it ended up on Twitter as a kind of global debate why were we seeing different things at that time Was was there ever any kind of
1: scientific explanation to what went on then? There was actually a huge flurry of scientific investigation into what happened, um, and it turned out that what what was going on there was that that image, the image of the dress, which just didn't show um, much of the person's um, the person's head or um, or legs, it's just the torso of this dress, and it it had a perfect absence of information to make it ambiguous to people's brains. So, when we look at something, we make assumptions unconsciously about whether we're looking at something in artificial light or in daylight. Artificial light is much warmer and more yellow and daylight is much more blue and we compensate in our perception of colour for what we understand. So that's why when you look at an object that's, I'm just looking at a yellow notebook and part of it is in shade, but I know, um, I believe that the whole book is the same colour yellow because I'm just compensating for the shade because I'm, I know from experience that, you know, unconsciously that that is, it's all one colour. So when people looked at the, this image of the dress, apparently some people unconsciously assumed that the photo was taken in daylight and they would have filtered out, uh, unconsciously filtered out the blue lights of the dress, the, the blue aspects of the image leaving it as white and gold. Whereas other people seem to have unconsciously assumed it was taken in artificial light, they filtered out the the yellower shades of light, leaving the dress perceived as blue and black. And even more interesting, there seemed to be a correlation between people's lifestyles and the assumptions, the unconscious assumptions that their brains were making so they these researchers asked people you know various questions about what time of day they, they you know they find themselves most productive or what time they like to go get up in the morning and go to bed and It turned out that the night owls tended to assume that the dress was uh, the photograph was taken in a artificial light so they would tend to see the blue and black whereas um the early birds filtered out the blue lights and tended to see it as white and gold so There was an actual substantial correlation between lifestyle and how people saw the dress.
0: It really is interesting because it seems just in that moment was a confluence of factors that revealed something that obviously goes on all the time, as you um, as you explain there, But we're blissfully unaware of and it makes you wonder (laughs) how many how many like kind of subtle differences my world might have to yours or to another person. And it's yeah. as you say, it is very it's very difficult to kind of get to these things because we assume, I suppose, that we're seeing the same thing. Of course we're not saying so, <laughs> so there we go. That's one yeah, thing. Yeah,
1: and I mean that you know that that's really the stocking trade of of magicians. Um and you know is to is to play around with these un, unconscious assumptions that we all make when we're looking at things. Uh, to, you know, to either misdirect our attention or to just play with those assumptions so that we perceive what they want us to perceive.
0: And I suppose as you describe like the contextual kind of factors which are changing the picture just then, which might be whether you're an early bird or or you're, you know, kind of a bit of a night owl or whatever this plays into the idea of history because history is basically changing context isn't it we are um in many ways very similar biologically to um maybe the romans or the greeks or people much further back than that but we live in a completely different context so you know this obviously manifests itself today in debates about how we're not using our our bodies in the right way we're not supposed to sit down um, for long periods of time because we're you know kind of we're supposed to be walking around and things and mm-hmm. I suppose when you think about this idea of seeing it's interesting to think about that changing culture and changing context which will then inform the different types of seeing so you said earlier um, that you have looked at 11 moments was it um, in time, could you give us just a, a few of these? I know we're going to talk about one of them in particular, but just give us a flavour mm-hmm. of a few that you think um, might have shaped the way that we perceive the world around us.
1: Well, um, well, the, the earliest one is is mankind's um, management of fire and the discovery of, of how to use fire constructively, because that that um, gave us the ability to to be safe from other animals, but in particular to see in the dark uh, and. Um, and that also ended up separating us from other animals. It promoted us up, up the food chain. It gave us cooking, which allowed our brains to develop because it was easier to digest food. So there's a whole lot of exciting things that happened around the discover of, discovery of fire. And then um, we move on to um, art, the first cave cave art that was uh, has been going, uh, around 55,000 years ago And I I explored the discovery of the Chauvet Caves in France, which are these incredibly beautiful pictures on the walls of a cave, deep, deep beyond um, where any natural light would have reached them, executed with real mastery of of the craft of of image making. And and all must have been done from memory because they're they're far beyond the subjects of the pictures, which were typically animals, um, very rarely images of people. Anyway, then we move on through Mirrors. The introduction of Mirrors about 8,000 years ago coincided amazingly with a a shift in the consciousness of the community where they were found from being a very egalitarian society to becoming more individualistic. This is identified by the the archaeologists who've who've, um, worked on this particular community uh, in in what's now Turkey for a dozen years. Uh, So Mirrors... An amazing tool to see ourselves you know we weren't built to see ourselves so what happens when we do what changes in our brain and you know as you probably know that you know they're a much beloved uh, and have been since roman times beloved tool for interrogating our psychology and philosophy um, and our understanding of ourselves and how that makes both our personality but also our understanding of the world around us so so we're going to mirrors. So we're still very much in the ancient world here. Writing developed in, in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and then became, eventually became the alphabet uh, in Greece. Then shift forward quite a long time to discuss the invention of spectacles. Then we talk about uh, the printing press, uh, the telescope, industrialized light, photography, moving images. And then the last couple of chapters are all about the smartphone and, and what's, what that's doing to society and how that is channeling um, our daily experience to a degree that I question um, through our eyes because we're increasingly doing um, like you said about you know not moving around and so on we are increasingly able to do most of our daily tasks just through the screen, which means we're not um, interacting with other people, we're not moving around, we're not going outside and smelling and hearing um, the sounds of nature. So I, I raise some questions about how good that is for us.
0: Well, as I said to you before, it's um, as a first book, this is no mean feat. I've read it, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful tour through a lot of human history. Today, of course, so we're just going to delve in to one particular year and uh, it's now the time for me to ask you the question that we ask of everyone who comes on which is Susan Denham-Wade. If you could travel back to one calendar year in the past which one would you choose?
1: I've chosen the year 1454.
0: Okay very very good choice and it's kind of adjacent to a choice we had before which is 1453 which uh, you might want to um, allude to in a moment because I'm going to ask you what the world was like and what what is the significance of that year to you what attracts you to that time?
1: I'm attracted to what was going on in a particular town in Germany for reasons that we'll, we'll probably go into more detail in a minute but it is a time of real sort of feels pregnant with change in a way that this this period it's really the beginning of the age of discovery you know we're where 40 years before um, Columbus's um, great journey, but but it's all stirring. So there's there's a feeling of anticipation in the air. Probably not for everyday people, but certainly when you're re- reading about the history of that period, you'd think, "Gosh, this is this is a, a time when things are really happening." Let's look at your history. Um, where would you like to go to if I'm
0: giving you this opportunity to travel through three scenes? Where would you like to go to first?
1: Well, I'm I'm going to Mainz, which I think is probably. Incorrectly pronounced, but I'm just going to stick with that. And apologies to any native German speakers, uh, which is a town that sits on the Rhine River, uh, which is a sort of super highway of the time. It's a really busy river, transporting people um, up and down and goods, and cargo. So it's, it would have been full of boats using sails and oars to 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 move up and down the river. And Mainz sits on the junction of the Rhine and the main river, which leads east towards Frankfurt. It's, um, we were talking about um,
0: Albrecht Drurer a few episodes back, and he was this great figure of the Northern Renaissance. Um, Mm -hmm. He came out of, of Germany, I don't know, a few decades later on towards the end of the 15th century. And I suppose it, it was kind of interesting to me listening to Philip Hoare, who was describing his life and thinking about um, a different center um, of Renaissance activity, because we're so used to thinking of Florence and Italy being, you know, the kind of the place where everything was going on. But this I'm going to pronounce it in the same way as you. So double apologies to anybody else. It's uh, made, it seems to be a real center, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it's it's a very important um, city within the Holy Roman Empire, because the Archbishop of Mainz is um, has a primary role, and I I can't go into too much detail about it, not because it's secret, but uh, because I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but he has a primary role in the election of the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. So, so it's um, politically
0: significant, yeah,
1: yeah, within the within church politics at the time. Um, but it is, but in other ways, it's. It's very much just a typical medieval city. It's it, it's surrounded by a wall that has towers and gates to get into. Uh, and within the city, it's a very crowded, noisy, really smelly place uh, full of animals and people moving around all the time. Um, if if one were to, to walk through the city, uh, you'd come upon the, the different quarters of the different trades plying there applying their trades and merchants, different sorts of merchants selling their wares, um, all within displaying the, the costume of their particular guild. So these the guilds were a real feature of this, this period of uh, medieval life, which was each each uh, profession or trade or skill or craft uh, was, would be a member, compulsorily be a member of a guild. They would not be permitted to do the said activity if they weren't part of the guild and these guilds were very tight societies and very secretive They they, they would pass on the secrets to apprentices over a number of period of many years and this is all because it's still a very oral society N- not much is written down outside the church and um, and the universities that are that are starting to to spring up and so quite often um, people use all sorts of interesting ways to remember complicated things so for example, I don't know say the process of the alchemy that would turn create various metal alloys. so they might use a rhyme or a ritual process to uh, remember the sequence of events and activities that need to take place to to do that and this is really common and I mean, we—if you th- think about—we tend to think about it in terms of fairy tales. So, if you think about the seven dwarfs going "Hi ho, hi ho, it's off to work we go," that's a, a fun little thing in a in a in a movie. But in fact, that sort of thing was probably quite common in terms of people going about their daily activities.
0: Hmm. Well, there's lots of reasons to pick this as a place, and the color of the town, the animation of the people within it, the culture that's there. But it's all kind of typically medieval, as you say. So you'd kind of get a glimpse of society as it probably had been for maybe a few hundred years with um, mm-hmm. with a few changes, I suppose. Um, but there is something particular about here that you want to kind of go and um, have a look at, isn't there?
1: Yeah. So, So walking through the town, you come upon the huge cathedral of St Martin, which is Uh, where where the archbishop is based, this important archbishop that we've discussed already. And on this particular day, um, I don't know the actual date, but a middle-aged man is walking into the cathedral and through down some cloisters and corridors and and into an office, and he's carrying a bundle, a large bundle wrapped in cloth. Uh, And if we were to open the bundle, we'd see that it contains 200 or so... um, leaflets certificates Uh, and these are these are indulgences these are um, certificates of um, indulgence allowing the person who buys them uh, to to get out of jail free essentially for 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 sins it doesn't actually forgive their sins but it means they don't have to do the penance that they, they might otherwise have to do and these indulgences are a massive money spinner for the church uh, around this this time they're sold by their thousands to raise money for building projects or to wage wars um, probably at this time they were they were being sold to wage a war against the Turks going back to the uh, the little problem in the east that that um, had happened a year earlier uh, but if you looked closely at these indulgences you'd notice something really unusual about them because Normally, at this time, anything that was written, whether it's a letter, a contract, a certificate like these indulgences, or a whole book, it was, would always be written by hand. There was, was, that was the only way that, um, that that written material could be could be replicated and so there's a whole industry of scribes um, creating written material for the church um, and copying books, copying manuscript books. Uh, which is a you know a whole other um, story that one could discuss for ages, but and if you look closely at this particular set of indulgences being delivered in Mainz um, into the cathedral there, you'd notice that they're all identical, and that's really strange because no scribe could replicate a page of writing identically, but these these uh, indulgences are identical, and that's because the man delivering them is Johann Gutenberg. And he has produced these indulgences in his revolutionary printing
0: press. Well, I think we know where we're going to go in a minute, but I've got a few questions first. I suppose, could I ask you a little bit more about indulgences? Because immediately it's one of those words which triggers off associations with Luther and the Reformation. Are they by this point of the mid-15th century everywhere? Or are they still kind of like a specialist thing which are pumped out once in a while when money's needed? Do you know?
1: I actually don't fully know the answer that to that question. I know that they need to be, you know each sort of set of indulgences. there's there's a particular um, missive sent from um, either the Pope or one of the senior members of the church that gives granting permission to mm. issue a set of indulgences. That that, and that's typically when they have a need for a particular uh, amount of money. And I know that there are there are different sorts of indulgences for different sorts of sins um there's a plenary indulgence which is a sort of all all encompassing but there are um also uh indulgences for, for particular groups of people particularly for clergy there are some that were just specifically aimed at clergy uh i, I don't know i know there were you know they were being pumped out in their in their hundreds and thousands mm. and you can imagine that within Mainz for the for the archbishop there that if this Gutenberg fellow could produce them quickly and in quantity, um, that was a huge boon for them because then you know they can they can get them sold and raise money quicker than ever because it would take a scribe about a day to produce to produce one indulgence. So imagine you know if this man can you know within a week deliver hundreds of them.
0: That would that's very quickly become a very useful figure. I imagine. Do any of these? Yeah. This is the exciting question. Do any of these? Little scraps of um, indulgence, as I imagine they would be today. Do they exist? Can you see them? How do we know about
1: them? You can look online. There are scraps of them. there are scraps of them, but they're only scraps. Um, mm. uh, they've been much scrutinised as part of the whole, you know, forensic analysis of of Gutenberg and you know of of, of the printing press in this period of time, with intense analysis of the particular. Um, typeface that's that's used in in this one or that one, uh, but they are quite quite substantial um, items. But as I say, they they look like a certificate. You know, the, the priest would fill in your name and sign it at the bottom and probably give it a a seal, and that was that's your indulgence then, paper. Yeah,
0: I suppose he's doing what any inventor would do today in a way. He's got his new product and he's taking it along. For inspection to the people who have the cash, and the people who have the cash and would become the best patrons, of course, are the church. So that's obviously what he's doing in in, in the cathedral at this point. Let's um, yeah, well, let's he, have a look. he's
1: he's actually he's actually doing doing two things. I think he's 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 doing some sort of practice run of the the printing press, you know, just um, perfecting the perfecting the technology, and he's also cash flowing his bigger and more ambitious project.
0: Hmm. Let's go to your second scene, because I think we're going to learn a bit more about this individual in question. Why would you like to go to next, please?
1: So we're still in Mainz, and it's now the summer um, of 1454, and we're in a workshop. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in a, a workshop that is a printing workshop, uh, but nobody knows it's a printing workshop because it's absolutely top secret what, what's going on in there. Um, this is Gutenberg's um, business. And he has in, set up in here, he actually has two workshops nearby, near, near one another, um, and he has set up six printing presses, and they are engaged. Some of them are working on the um, everyday jobbing work, such as the indulgences, but the majority are working on this incredibly ambitious project that, that Gutenberg has to print 180 copies of a full Bible making them as perfect as humanly possible. Six six presses. So
0: this is all kind of quite advanced in a way, but this is the dream, isn't it? If you're going to make anything, make a Bible. And if you're going to make a Bible, make a beautiful Bible. And this, I suppose, is the ambition that you alluded to just a moment ago when you said the the kind of the greater project. Um, It's a dream, isn't it, to create the world's most beautiful Bible in a regular form?
1: Yeah, this is this is the dream um, of uh, of Gutenberg. It's it's both I think it's both an idealistic dream in a way uh, because it offers a definitive version of the book that will bring together um, Catholicism because part of all the, the the anxiety about what's going on in the East is is. The lack of resolution between the Western Church and the Eastern Church. Uh, and so this is sort of part of a political movement within the church to try and reunite the two sides. Uh, but also, and, and I think probably primarily, um, it's a business venture. I think he is a, an entrepreneur, as I picture him. Not much, not that much is known about him as a person. You know, we know stuff about his background. His father was a patrician. Uh, part of the patrician class of of Mainz, his mother was from a lower class. He was the second son, so he had to find a way to make his own money. And I think, and he'd he'd been in some interesting business ventures earlier in his life. But I think, arguably, these were all leading up to this grand project of which the Bible was going to be the calling card of creating a printing press using movable type.
0: I know this uh in kind of preparation for this, I was looking up a bit about Gietenberg's biography, as you say, he's a very elusive character. we don't know very much, but um he seems to be about sixty years old by this point, which is pretty pretty old really for the time but the um the other thing which I really liked is that they do know from um looking through the archive that he was sued for defamation, which I thought was a wonderful anecdote for someone who's inventing um printing as. You know, kind of the, the the you know, the kind of pioneer of that as well. but, um, yeah, I mean, he was um he was a man who was very, very good with his hands. he was a, he was a practiced, um kind of, I don't know how you'd describe him that, but he would be um a kind of product of the kind of person you'd find in Mainz, wouldn't he?
1: Yes, I think so, because this um the sort of the politics within the city itself was very much. Um, and quite often at loggerheads um between the patrician class which is sort of the old money um gentry and this the guildsmen who are all the members of this rising artisan and merchant class who um are as a, as I described all part of these Secretive groups, but but some of those were making uh, reasonable money, and it's the very very early days of capitalism too. So so you're starting to see people investing in businesses as as a um, with a view to future profits, uh, which is quite a new thing. You know, most of life up till now has been preoccupied bit by, by um, investing in life after death, uh, but we're now starting to see and and Gutenberg ha, indeed has. Uh, investors who who um, lent lent him money on the prospect of the returns later from his his bible um, project initially
0: and there was um, another technological problem um, another technological point I wanted to pick up with you which is um, about movable type and uh, woodblock printing now woodblock printing had been around for a little bit of time hadn't it before this yes um Mm -hmm. which is essentially when you just carve you know the kind of the type script you want into a a block of wood as described but that's completely impractical for a massive project like the bible of course because you'd have to have a different um wood block for each page and it would just go on and on and on can you just talk a little bit about movable type and what, what the difference is there
1: Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, as you say, I mean, the, the, the so just to put into context the size of the project he was undertaking. The, each each Bible was twelve hundred pages, mm. um, and each page was two columns, um, quite dense of quite dense text, each forty two lines long. So you can imagine, yeah, the, as you say, the task to to carve all that out of woodblock would be it's just not even conceivable so the the technology of the movable type the genius of it was that each letter and symbol was carved just once to make a master and that's that was called a punch Um, and he he would actually have multiple versions of different letters uh, in order to 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 make the type setting um, as attractive as possible but I'll talk about that in a second but so but the punch was then uh, would be punched and this was this was a, a long standing technology that had been used in coin making and and other sort of crafts for for many many years the punch would make an indentation into some sort of mold no one knows exactly how the mold worked but this was called a matrix then using a a mold a metal alloy which in this case was tin lead and aluminum was poured into the mold and the result would be a little um, stick, these are the, the individual types, which is a little metal stick with a moulded letter, it was in mirror image, at the end of it and that was the type and the genius of it was that um, using this, this technique you could make as many of an individual letter as you needed to, to do your typesetting for your page. So imagine on a single page you might need a hundred letter E's for example, um, you could make a hundred of these or you could make as many as you wanted to from this one punch and matrix uh, and they're all identical to one another. Then how that translates into a printed page is all the different types are organised on these big tables, like a bit like an architect's drawing table that is um, divided into lots of little boxes and all the capsule letters are arranged in the uppercase. And all the small letters are arranged in the lowercase. And that's where that, that those words come from. Um, and then a compositor uses a little stick, a bit like a Scrabble stick, a Scrabble rack, and picks out the letters one by one that makes up the line of text that, that they're working on. And as I say, it's, it's all in mirror image, so they have to you know be quite careful and concentrate. And then each line goes from the compositing stick into a case that's called um, a form. And so that that's built up then line by line, line by line, down the 42 lines, then the next column down the 42 lines. Um, And in the case of the Gutenberg Bible, um, it's quite an amazing feat of craft that the the columns are almost perfectly justified, both left and right uh, in both columns. Then little bits of wood um, inserted into it just to hold everything really tightly in place. So you've got this little wooden tray that has got uh, that now has the two columns of metal types arranged to form the words and then stuffed with other little bits to hold everything tightly in place.
0: Yeah, I mean, genius indeed, because um, the number of different skills um, that you have to have to do something like that is um i i don't know it's just remarkable so you have to have the kind of aesthetic ability um to kind of create the the shapes for the font in the first place and you have to have the technical ability you have to have access to the materials which i suppose takes us back to Mainz. you have to have the ideas of you know the experience of working with metals there was somewhere where i read that um that gutenberg had previously worked on these things called pilgrim's mirrors I don't know if you've heard about these but these are the ideas oh I love this yeah. yeah it's a wonderful fact so when they had a particular relic you could hold the mirror up and it would kind of suck up the power of the um the kind of sacred object is that right am I describing that correctly
1: yeah no that's exactly right and it's I I love that detail because you know I, I have a chapter in the book about mirrors and also another chapter in the book about about the the, the, the medieval relationship between sight and and faith
0: i suppose what i was thinking about is this concentration of of talent in in the person of gutenberg of course you were looking at and Mm -hmm. then he's enabled by this kind of northern renaissance city that he's living in to have access to um to the materials to make it all work but i just know from my own work i've been writing about benjamin franklin for the last couple of years and this what you described a minute ago is pretty much exactly the same technology that was at work in say the mid 18th century you know this movable type was Mm -hmm. so good it was so different i mean if you're going from the scriptorium and people writing the scribes writing out everything in hand to um to something like this in a short space of time it really is astonishing it's an astonishing moment in the historical story and it's quite nice to think that it was done in in top secrecy do we know anything about that like veil of secrecy that he had
1: over the project um from the historical record not a lot i mean we we know that we know that he referred to it as the work of books mm. um so that was that's when he and his business partner uh, came to a sticky end a couple of years after this uh the the court documents refer to this work of books and we know that um, the initial um, Bibles were designed to replicate handwriting, manuscript-style handwriting, as closely as possible. So it was later iterations of printed books um, start to experiment with different sorts of typeface. But this, this was really—I um, really, I really genuinely don't know whether he realised what a revolutionary idea this was and how much it was going to eventually change the world. I. I really wonder whether he was, um, you know. Obviously, as you say, he's brought together these existing technologies, the the uh, the the punch and matrix um, molding thing. His father was associated with the the Mainz mint, so he would have been familiar with the process of coin making, and that's that's really the origin of the of the metal type um, casting. Uh, And he's also um, Mainz is in the middle of the wine growing area, so the the screw mechanism on the press is very similar, or it's the same, as had been used for for many years um, in wine presses. That's fascinating. So, yeah, so he's he's just done that sort of classic innovative, you know, innovation thing of bringing together uh, existing technologies and combining them in a new way to create something that's completely revolutionary.
0: It really is fascinating. And I suppose the idea
1: that we know a bit, but we don't know
0: much makes the interior of his press room and just uh just the place to be because you'd be able to see all of this um at work do you know like again this is from the historical evidence we have did he work alone or i mean if he had six presses it kind of suggests that he must have had a bit of a team of workers and you alluded to his business partner and the sticky end do you want to say anything about that broader kind of gutenberg operation for a moment
1: Yes well he he will have had so each press would it was be have two men working on it, one um, preparing the paper and the other um, um, inking the inking the type. so when the the case of type all made up into its into its page is put onto the onto the bed of the press, uh, the inker takes the the inking ball, which is a a leather um, ball stuffed with horsehair or wool on the on the end of it. A stick. It looks a little bit like a plunger, if anyone still knows what a plunger is. Uh, except it's a round ball at the end, and then that's rubbed into some ink that's prepared on a surface. One of the other innovations of the Gutenberg press was the ink that he developed, which was an oil-based ink, which was different from what had been used for for handwriting. Uh, and they would rub rub this ball around in the ink, and then dab, 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 dab it over the type to create a nice even, uh, nice even layer of uh, ink. And then the paper which the other worker had been attaching to uh, a little thing called a tympan, which was a frame that was then covered with a frisket, which looks like a mount on a picture frame that held the paper perfectly flat. And that, that whole thing was hinged onto the press and would be folded over so that it laid down exactly flat and evenly across the type. And then that whole, that whole case would be slid under the, um, the main frame of the press, the, the vertical frame of the press. The lever would be pulled that turned the screw and pushed the plate down onto that page, making the impression of the push that the paper down onto the inked types. The plate would be lifted. The case would be slid out from underneath and the tin pan lifted and the page peeled off. And that's a printed page.
0: Hello, Peter here. Today's episode is supported by The History Press, the United Kingdom's largest dedicated history publisher. As many of you will already know, The History Press has been publishing fascinating books like Susan Denham Wade's for many years, and in no way are they confined to the 15th century world we're talking about today. In fact, their books span all eras of the past, and current highlights include Samuel Pepys and the Strange Wrecking of the Gloucester by the naval historian Nigel Pickford, the German street style which looks into the cultural impact of one of London's famous tailoring streets, and for those of you who just love the Tudors, and let's face it, who doesn't, there's an enticing new work called Woodsmoke and Sage, The Five Senses, 1485-1603, How the Tudors Experienced the world check out any or indeed all of these at the history press's website which is www.thehistorypress.co.uk and what they held up would be well it's the kind of one thing that we we do have and let's go to it now because i think we're going to encounter the object that was in production inside the press room in your third scene so where is your third scene let's see
1: so the third scene, we're now going up the main river to uh, Frankfurt. And Frankfurt at this time is the site of an annual trade fair. And this is a huge, um, a huge fair. Tens of thousands of people would come from all over Europe to the trade fair. And uh, there was a, a, a special decree um, issued some years earlier for, for, for towns where these fairs were um, were taking place. Um, warning against interfering with anybody coming to or from these fairs so presumably you know warning off any bandits that they would be uh, potential bandits of people obviously bringing their wares and and bringing their money and buying buying things and taking them home again so it was a a big undertaking in the main uh, city hall known as the Roma which again I'm probably really mispronouncing uh, where people would come from all over and trade in in the, the goods of the you know the, the goods of the day so it would be uh wool, wool cloth, silk, precious metals, spices, uh glass from Venice, um, and manuscripts. It was it was a place where, where manuscripts were traded. And in this year 1554 there is an Italian cardinal, Cardinal Piccolomini, who is there in Frankfurt at the time of the fair. He's not there for the purposes of the fair. He's there to try and persuade some German princes to uh, raise an army to go and fight the Turks. So again, this this issue of what's happened over in Constantinople is, is woven into all, all sort of stages of the story. But while he's there, he sees uh, these Quinturnians. So a, a Quinturnian is... Um, the name for uh, the sections of a book that were—it was—it's one way of making sections of a book. If you think of an old, old-fashioned hardback book that has the little sort of loops of loops of um, pages. So, in quinturnion is five sheets of paper laid on top of each other and folded together, giving eventually twenty printed pages. So, each each sheet contains four printed pages. And then when they're assembled into this quinternion, that creates uh, a little booklet, a part of a book that's 20 pages. So this is what he sees while he's in Frankfurt, uh, Piccolomini. And he writes later to a colleague of how wonderful this material is. And he also actually mentions the marvellous man who was selling them. And we don't know whether that was uh, Gutenberg or his business partner, Fust. It may well have been his partner because probably at this stage, Gutenberg is still busily trying to complete this work, you know, supervising this printing um, as it's going on. One of the things that I think
0: is worth stressing, um, because if we went from the kind of incredibly localised situation of Mainz before, you know, Frankfurt's not far away. It's maybe not much bigger. But the thing about the the fair is, I can understand it. Is it was quite an international affair. People would travel there from um, the Baltic countries, from maybe further towards France, from Italy. You obviously have your um, this cardinal who's come from Italy. So among all of that, this kind of really exciting novelty, and would I suppose these Quintinians, um just sitting there on. Um, a table to be discovered just to just describe how beautiful these are as a kind of taste of what was coming out of gutenberg's press rooms
1: yeah well at the time that they came out and probably what piccolo um, Piccolomini would have seen they would probably not have been decorated they they they, they were designed to um to be uh decorated after the printing that wasn't part of the the printing but the printing was 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 just the text but just that text was is is and because and you can see it there's a beautifully digitized copy that you can see through the british library um website and you can really zo- you know zoom in and, and really get quite intimate with it um but the uh the texts is it's perfect it's as i said earlier it's perfectly aligned uh justified left and right um, in a way that must have been incredibly difficult to do. You know, the letters are all carved perfectly. Clearly, Gutenberg was a utter perfectionist, um, and presumably discarded any impressions that, that that weren't up to scratch. And and the paper that he used was Italian paper. There was actually there was a paper uh, works in Mainz at the time, but he didn't feel that was of a sufficient quality. So he, he imported paper from Italy for his Bibles. And then a subset of them were, were printed onto vellum, which is a calf skin. That was much more expensive and, and difficult to um, get hold of in sufficient quantities. So magical in a way, uh, in their, as I said, the, the perfection. and And Although it's quite difficult for for our Western eyes to read the Gothic script, if you sort of it's a bit like listening to Shakespeare or something. If you if you kind of train your eye for a little while, it's it's incredibly clear. And it's this, and I'm talking about 500 years after the fact. So um, they really are beautiful items. And then what happened? And the ones that we see now um, were were uh, decorated and, and rubricated. That's the um, the name for. Uh, quite often, capital letters were were um, written in red ink, decorated with uh, margin um, beautiful drawings and and um, designs. Although ha- having said that, this illumination of manuscripts was pretty much destroyed by by the printing press for for reasons that that we can talk about. Uh, but the actual Gutenberg the copies that still exist are mostly beautifully decorated um, and objects of of. You know, works of art, really.
0: The the place to be, I think, is kind of loitering near whatever exhibition table he had at the moment that um, Piccolomini goes and walks by, because in our kind of um, big kind of top 10 moments of the Renaissance, that has to be up there. The Renaissance has been going on for a long time. There's been this kind of groundswell of interest in learning in the past. And I suppose anyone who's in a position um, of kind of power and status like him might instantly grasp that if you can um, produce a book as quickly as Gutenberg can once all the, you know, the kind of galleys and type is arranged what kind of change in knowledge might you have i suppose that's one just for us to ponder but can you can you tell us a little bit about how quickly after 1454 this mm-hmm. kind of caught on as a new technology that people could actually access rather than just being in the you know testing phase um, yeah. yeah
1: so so quite quickly uh, the run of bibles was a huge hit it sold out uh, as I said, Gutenberg and his partner, Fust, fell out for reasons that aren't entirely clear. But Fust ended up um, taking over the business with uh, his son-in-law, or soon-to-be son-in-law, um, who was had actually been uh, Gutenberg's apprentice. That's a guy called Peter Schoffer. And together, Fust and Schoeffer set up the first printing business in Europe. And, and they got on with this, the first things they started. They started off with mostly Bibles, moved on to... Um, a prayer book known as a Psalter moved on from there, uh, but there was some political and civil strife in Mainz, and some um, some of the, the workers from their, uh, from their works moved elsewhere. You know, the people moved around a lot of the time when things got a bit heavy where they were living and started to set up their own printing operations um, up and down the Rhine and eventually moving to Italy um, up to. to um, the, the western frontiers of, of Europe, in Paris and Rotterdam, eventually reached England in um, uh, 1474 with William Caxton. Um, so it spread quite quickly. And, and going back to the um, the notion of the, the trade guilds that I talked about, most most craft skills at the time were were very much tied up within their their particular guild. But because printing was a new art, although Fust and Schoffer tr- did try and keep it secret. Uh, for their own for their own benefit, they couldn't keep it secret forever. And and as soon as it broke out, people were free. As soon as you know, subject to um, having the the skills and the, the the wherewithal to to set themselves up, could set themselves up as as printing. So as a printer, so it did spread around Europe in a way that lots of other skills, like glassmaking, for example, was very concentrated in Venice because the guild, the glassmakers' guild in Venice, was so protective and secretive that. Uh, if someone were to try and leave the city with their trade secrets, um, in some cases they would track them down and actually kill them. So, but printy didn't have that protection. So it spread. It's a bit like um, it's a, it, you know it's very much really like the spread of the internet. There are no there are no physical borders that that could hold the internet, and so it spread really fast and, and, and hasn't been subject to the usual you know national laws and so on that that other industries um, would be have been subject to through. You know, through normal um, recent history, so over the next 50, 100 years, what was printed moved from being um, mostly religious material in much more into the mainstream. In concert with this, pe- more and more people began to learn to read because books became affordable and accessible. So they w- they moved from being, uh, as I say, mostly in the realm of religion. They moved into the um, the academic subjects for the for the market, the university markets that were springing up, but then they moved into these more everyday markets. And one of the genres that I find most uh, fascinating was these books of secrets that emerged about a hundred years after the beginning of printing. Basically, these books took all those secrets of practical knowledge uh, that had been existing within these little pockets of the various guilds um, around around Europe and started writing them down and sharing them and this was really revolutionary because it broke open all these little pockets of knowledge that had existed um, in, in these secret societies for hundreds and hundreds of years and brought them all out into the open and into a giant melting pot of Um, of of knowledge that then started to cross fertilize and you can imagine a big cauldron as you put more and more ingredients in and it starts fizzing up and bubbling up and this was really the explosion of 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 learning and knowledge that we call the renaissance and began this whole process the whole process of realizing that that the secrets of the universe aren't really secrets at all they're just um you know they're there waiting to be revealed and and Taking us neatly into the the next couple of centuries and the scientific revolution and all the amazing discoveries that that went on. Then knowledge was a very fragile thing, and a lot of the the uh, activity of the monks in the scriptorium copying manuscripts was all about preserving the knowledge that they had. Because in um, previous periods, they knew the Europeans knew that knowledge could be lost. It was lost after the Romans left, and it was um, the you know the, the big fires in the in the uh, the Great Baghdad Library lost uh, a huge amount of knowledge, um, and what the printing press allowed was uh, for knowledge to become secure. Because once you had hundreds or thousands of copies of something, it could be it was it was safe, um, and then so that the the great minds of the day could apply themselves to progressing that knowledge, not just protecting it. So this is a this is a really important aspect of what the printing press allowed. Um, the scholars and thinkers and and actually everyday people of the day to do, was to to take for granted what was there and move on from it. And that's really the introduction um, of the notion of progress in society, which up until that time had been really quite cyclical and there wasn't sort of this linear notion that we must be moving on forward and upwards. Uh, it was, we go around, there's life and death, the seasons. Uh, but after this process of printing... Each step forward could be consolidated and taken and then you could take another step forward, knowing that with sufficient copies of, of material printed and shared around and, and um scrutinized by various different heads, it was that was secure so you could hold that place and move forward and hold that place and move forward. And this was a real change it both in scholarship, um, in and and also in worldview of you know of of, of the people of the time, which is partly why I'm so interested in it in terms of a history of seeing and and what the impact it had on on how people saw their world they they rather than seeing it as uh, an eternal mystery uh, the printing press allowed people to start seeing the world as um, as a puzzle to be solved and bit piece by piece revealed um, and the other thing that it that it did which uh, is, why it's it's the year that I've chosen in, uh, in the history of seeing is that it changed the method of transmission of knowledge and information from the spoken to the written or other printed word and in so doing it changed the mode, the primary mode of receiving knowledge and information from the ear to the eye and it's really the beginning of a truly visual culture. For, for the Western
0: world. That's beautifully summarised. Could I ask you my final question then, which is the one that comes around every episode as well. We give you a chance to um, dabble in a bit of material history. If you could um, bring a memento back of your time strolling around Mainz and Frankfurt and poking your head into the press room um, at Gutenberg's, what, is there anything you would like? What would you like to have?
1: Well, I mean, it would be really nice to have a Gutenberg Bible, but I think that's probably a bit greedy um, since they are um, priceless objects. Um, I would be quite happy with just a little handful of types.
0: Oh, well, that's very modest of you. We do encourage greed <laughs> at this this section, so we could give you a Gutenberg Bible, but then the types themselves, I suppose, take you right back to that moment of kind of, you know, individual craftsmanship, which is at the centre of the story and... Um, a wonderful moment in itself. Congratulations on the book, Susan Denham wade It's been a real treat to talk to you today. Thank you very much for coming on Travels Street Time.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Peter. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Susan Denham wade just the other day about a story she tells in much greater detail in her new book, A History of Seeing, in 11 inventions. It's available from the History Press right now, and I urge you to go and check it out. I mentioned the other day that our friend Jordan Lloyd has been working on a great new project called Unseen Histories. Well, today that website is launching with an exclusive extract from Susan's book. So if you enjoyed today's episode and would like to read much more, head over to unseenhistories.com to see the whole beautiful package. Violet's going to be back on Tuesday with that fabulous author, Michael Pye, who's going to be taking her on a tour of a city that was in the 16th century at the very centre of the world. Can you guess which city it is? I'll leave you with that thought, because that's all from me today. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.